Another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today, June 18th, 2010, it is Friday. Finally Friday, as some people say, TGIF, as other people say. Since I love what I'm doing, I think it's great that it's Friday because of the type of show I'm going to do today. But I don't look forward to Friday the way I used to. We'll talk about that a little bit in the last question today, about a comment I made about the resume being dead. Uh, but we got a lot of great questions today because, of course, since it's Friday, it is call-in Friday. What that means, well... It means that your questions answered on the air, but instead of just questions you send me like on a Monday by email, your questions by phone. These are pre-recorded calls that come into 866-65-THINK. And if you're on Facebook with me on the uh, fan page, you've had an opportunity this morning to get to the front of the line. I think one call came in after I stopped screening, so everybody else that called in today got their questions on the air. So make sure you're on a Facebook fan page. Great stuff today. Stuff about Biltong. An amazing story about Biltong. Not how to make it, but how it brought two people from two different nations together. And I guess a little bit of barter in there as well. Uh, an idea a listener has for a t-shirt. Um, people asking about rehydrating food once it's been dehydrated. Two questions that came in that have something to do with bamboo back to back. You won't believe the coincidence there. Uh, ideas about teaching and sharing skills, using PVC to store items in the ground and protect it. New innovative way to do that and a lot more. So your questions will be coming up in just a second. Before that, though, let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping. Housekeeping item number one, as always, let's take care of our sponsors. They'll help take care of you by making sure this show is here for you every single day. Uh, first sponsor of the day today is Ready-Made Resources. That's exactly what you get at Ready-Made Resources. All the resources you need, ready-made, tailor-made, put together for you so you can get on with your prepping needs. Everything from 12-volt products, gardening products, long-term storage food items. And this week, all the way till the end of the month, they are running a special on Mountain House. 25% off all Mountain House goods at Ready-Made Resources. Check out their banner at thesurvivalpodcast.com and check out that great deal they've got going on. Next up today, MERS Radio. Love MERS Radios, man. I just do. Uh, they're one of my favorite things in the world now that I have them. I never really got it until I bought a set. I bought a set about a year ago. Can't see being without them now. Um, we don't use them that much for communication because the property we have here in Arlington just isn't that big that we need a lot of secondary communication here. Uh, we used them for a few things uh you know, when, when uh, we, we just needed maybe to stay in touch when we went on, uh, you know, hiking and stuff like that. They're great for that. What I really love about them here, those security portion. We have these motion detectors on our property, and I know if somebody's trying to get in that doesn't belong there, and I know if one of the dogs are trying to get out and they don't belong, they don't ever belong out. So it's a great way to integrate secondary communications and security. So check out MERS-radio.com. Better yet, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on their banner. That's how you know you're dealing with a real survival podcast po sponsor. And remember, our sponsors go through an approval process through a listener uh, advertising council. 
You don't just get to be an advertiser on the show. All advertisers on the Survival Podcast are personal endorsements by me and then ratified by the members of our moderator squad on the forum. If one or, or actually two or more moderators say thumbs down to an advertiser, we don't take them. And that happens, and it just happened with a prospective new advertiser. I uh, won't name them, but don't do that. But I want you to understand that program is not a gimmick. It is there for your protection, and when we have... Uh, problems with somebody, so to speak, with delivery or issues or anything that we think would be damaging to our brand, we don't take them as a sponsor. So I like to bring that in once in a while, just to let you guys know that. Next up, make sure you check out our gear shop. I've been getting a lot of questions about the French Press mugs. They should all ship out and be in your hands by the end of the month. That is the latest update from Sis Wolf and TW at the gear shop. But check the gear shop out for cool stuff. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. A whole bunch of free ebooks and discounts. And just let me say that it'll definitely pay you back and you're supporting the show at 20 cents an episode. Big announcement, too, um, right here at the end of the housekeeping. I worked from the time I signed off yesterday and published the show until almost 5 o'clock without stopping, without eating, without, and I had people on Facebook telling me, dude, take a break. It wasn't like that. It wasn't like I was suffering. I worked that long because I was so into what I was doing. I was working on the Revolution Is You slideshow video. I hope to have that done today. The slideshow portion's done. I'm going to shoot an introduction by me with an acoustic version of just the guitar of the song playing in the background to set the, the tempo for people that aren't familiar with the show, aren't familiar with you guys. But this is going to be amazing. I also want to apologize. I want to apologize for all the people's photos I didn't use. There were well over 600 photos submitted. 600. Um, doing a three-second duration per slide, I was able to fit roughly 120 photos in. So more didn't get used than did. And some of you guys with the pictures of the kids, you're not playing fair, man. You know how hard it is to look at a picture of a cute kid and go, okay, that one's not in. Uh, but if I did that, the whole thing would have been nothing but kids. There's a lot of kids in it, though. But I want to thank you guys. And I'm going to even be honest with you. I didn't even actually get to look at every single picture. Uh, because by the time I got to a point where I'm like, I just can't use anymore anyway, I didn't want to aggravate the situation once I had a group. I may do a second version of this video. I may do a third version of this video. Keep sending your pictures. Keep doing it. This is going to be awesome. I don't care how... I mean, each one of these takes forever to do, but... It's worth doing it. Maybe I do one a month, a new version every month, because people need to see how many people out there standing alongside them. For those that are maybe new to today, the new show, uh, the new show theme that came out about a month ago called "The Revolution Is You," the music you heard at the beginning of the show. People are sending in pictures. If you want to keep doing that, uh, put pictures or photos in the subject line. Just send it to Jack at the dot com. And uh, keep sending them in, folks, because it's just amazing what you guys have done out there. And this video is going to be awesome, and I want all of you guys to help me make this thing viral. I want people to know what it's really all about to be a modern survivalist. All right, from there, let's go ahead and take one of your calls. The first call is really interesting. It's not really a question, but it's something I wanted to share with the audience because I thought it was just awesome. Hey, Jack, this is Joe Helms, uh, Southwest Michigan. Um, I don't really have a question or a comment to put on your show, but I do have a neat little story I thought you'd like to hear. I'm at Lowe's this morning, and I'm getting some stuff, you know, for this, that, and little projects around the house, and this guy walks up to me. He's parked right next to me. I'm walking into my truck, you know, with my, my little shopping cart, and he comes up to me and asks, hey, I don't have a truck. I, I, he, basically, he needed to get some 20-foot pipes. He didn't have a truck. I had a truck. This guy is obviously from South Africa. 
I know what you're thinking, obviously, Bill Pond. Let me get to it. So I said, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll wait for you. You go get your stuff and, you know, throw it in the back of my truck and I'll haul it to wherever you need, which is really just right down the street from me. We get to his house, unload the stuff, and he wants to pay me. I'm like, eh, you know, I, I don't know. You know, I'm just trying to be a nice guy here. And I said, I was like, yeah, you know, you want to pay me? Okay. Okay. Uh, teach me, because I... I, I I've made Bill Pong before. It was subpar to say the to say the least. I ate it. I didn't want to waste the meat, but yeah, did not enjoy it. So I say to the guy, I'm like, um, teach, uh, can you teach me how to make Bill Pong? This guy's face lit up like a Christmas tree. Bill Tong, oh, oh, you, you, you know Bill Tong. I, when I first come here, I, I go to the shop and, and I ask for Biltong, and they say, what is what is this Biltong? And he just goes on and on and on. I'm sorry, I'm starting to get choked up here a little bit just because, you know, the guy was just, just ridiculously happy to, you know, teach me how to make Biltong. So I got a batch going right now, and just it, it was it was just really, really, in, it was really neat. Just because, you know, just Bill Tong separated two nations. I, I just thought that was kind of cool. Also, just as a as a personal note, you, your show has really got me uh, motivated to really get started on a lot of things. I'm uh, I'm canning, I'm dehydrating, I'm, I'm doing a lot of things, making my, you know, I got the garden going out back now. And if it wasn't for you, I, I wouldn't have any of this going. So I just want to say thank you very much. Thank you for your show. And thank you for your service. Hoorah. All right, folks. Well, um, first of all, Joe broke the rules with the call-in and called in twice. I had to splice two of his calls together because he went on for so daggone long that he exceeded the two-minute limit on the voicemail. But there was no way I wasn't going to put that on the air. That is just too cool. I have a couple of observations there. First, um, that people from outside of America generally are quicker to strike up conversations than we've become in this country, and that's sad because it didn't used to be that way. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've had similar experiences. I've never had anybody ask me to haul pipe home to their house. But people from especially South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand, when I've, when I've had the pleasure of meeting folks from those three countries, tend to talk to you as though they already know you. And what I found is I've never had one do that, and I felt in any way like my personal space was being violated. And I think we can learn something from that. Um, so I just wanted to point that out. But number two is, and this is really important that people understand this. I, I've mentioned at, at one point when I was really on a kick with the gardening and the cooking and everything for a couple weeks, I had a guy you know email me and he was upset. He's like, I tuned into this for rough and tough survival stuff. You be talking about guns and reloading and uh, all that good stuff like you used to talk about, which you know I'd only been doing the show for like two months or three months at the time, so I don't know what used to was all about. But uh, you know, he said, What are you gonna do next? Teach me how to make a cherry pie? And I said, I might. See, and this is why. Food is a universal language. It's a universal communicator. It's a universal way to connect. Gardens are the same way. That's why I'm so big on them. We need to build communities again, like we used to have. Small town America needs to return, and it is returning. And it's wild how it's returning. On some levels, it's returning because of technology. 
You know, in the old days, like I was talking about on a show recently, if you didn't take care of a customer, you were in a small town economy, everybody knew it like tomorrow, and people stopped coming to your store. So you had to take care of your customers. Well, today with things like Yelp and Twitter and Facebook, that's happening to big companies everywhere. But we need to take that technology communication that we all tweet to each other and Facebook each other and YouTube each other and podcast each other and start going back to communicating with people face-to-face again. And even though this guy asked for some help and, and uh, Joe gave him help, was happy to give him help, no big deal. And I would have been just like, Joe, you can't pay me for doing that. Come on. I mean, you know, it's a little inconvenience and I got to meet a new person. I'm not going to charge you for something like that. I could never, I could never feel good about myself taking money. But the, the other guy saying, you did me a favor. I need to be able to do something to feel whole here because he's an honorable guy. And the minute that Bill Tong got mentioned... You had an almost instant brotherhood. You can hear it in the guy's voice when he describes it. Well, see, discussing how angry you are about the Federal Reserve doesn't do that. Telling people that they need a gun to defend themselves doesn't do that. We connect on, on the things that are most important to us every day. And like I've said, we eat every day. And what you saw there was a bridge built between two nations over a simple thing like a piece of dried meat. That people have made for thousands and thousands of years, dried in the sun. And that's really cool. And you also saw something else at work, barter. See, really, it was barter, and it was barter between equals, where there was no haggling. See, real barter works that way. In real barter, you don't even have to barter first. Right? I've talked to people who are really proud about how they go to these events and they come out ahead of everybody in the trade blanket, which is a, you know, kind of a thing that they do. That's cool. And I'm not putting the trade blankets down or anything for you guys to go to events and do that. I'm just saying that I've never felt good in a business deal or a trade or anything because I got the better of somebody. I've always felt good when I felt like both of us got exactly what we wanted. And that's what happened here. One guy wanted his pipes taken home, and the other guy said, you know what, I tried this Biltong thing. I need somebody that really knows what they're doing to show me how to do it. And uh, that's just awesome. So thanks for sharing that, Joe. Let's go ahead and take a uh, another call. Hey, this is Randy Hoffire. I live in uh, South Texas. And uh, I heard you talking about gamma seals and Mylar bags and things like that. And I don't know where to get them or how to even use them or what they're for. If you could explain those to me, it'd be uh, great, and I uh, appreciate the show. Well, good question, Randy, and I guess sometimes maybe I forget that not everybody that listens to this show has been listening to the show for two years and uh, or has been a prepper their whole lives, and sometimes I talk about things in these terms that uh, maybe others aren't familiar with, so thank you for making me take a step back. First of all, I appreciate that. Um, a gamma seal is pretty simple little device. They are. Uh, it looks like a ring with a screw lid. So you take a food-grade plastic bucket, and you take this ring and you put it on there the way you'd put the lid on the plastic bucket. And then you have this little spinny you know, centerpiece that spins on there with a seal that's airtight. And what that allows you to do is if you have foodstuffs or anything in that bucket and you want to take some out, it's really easy to open it and reseal it and keep an airtight seal with oxygen absorbers included if it's food or if it's, you know, even things like people store sometimes ammunition in buckets like that and uh, keeping it in an airtight environment prevents any kind of corrosion or, or, you know, breakdown of components or whatever. So you keep anything in a five-gallon bucket like that. Um, With food, you need to make sure you're using a food-grade bucket. Now, the next step up there from that is people pack the foods, especially, that are going into these buckets. And really, it's the only thing I see a need to pack in a Mylar is, uh, you know, is food. 
And mylar is this shiny, metal-looking, almost foil-looking material uh, that's it's impermeable to light and gas. And it's not 100% impermeable to light and gas, but it's pretty dadgone impermeable. So if you take a mylar bag and you fill that up with food and you put that bag of food into a bucket and you seal the bag and inside the bag you put O2 absorbers and then inside the bucket you put some O2 absorbers and then you seal that bucket with a gamma seal, you end up with a very light-deprived, oxygen-deprived environment and you end up with an excellent environment for long-term storage of your food. Now, mylar, how do you use it? Uh, that's one way is inside a bucket. You can also seal things in mylar that don't go in a bucket, and they still get an awful lot of protection, more than, let's say, a typical vacuum sealing, uh, because if you do a vacuum seal, obviously you still have light able to get in. Uh, and it's also pretty tough material. It seems like it's not tough, but it's pretty daggone tough, so it's pretty resistant. Now, rodents will chew through it. That's one thing to worry about. You also want to use O2 absorbers with it, but you have to be careful with uh, mylar. If you get too much of the air out and put too much of an O2 absorber in, it can actually shrink to a point where it can tear itself. Uh, but that's not real likely to happen as long as you're, you know, you're not usually going to get that much out. But if you were to, um, oh, I don't know, use a vacuum sealer on a mylar bag and include O2 absorbers, you might cause that additional uh, shrinkage. But since you pulled that much oxygen out, the O2 absorber generally doesn't do that much. But I have heard from people that say it happens. Generally, this is what I'll do. I'll take my Mylar bag and I'll put it down into my bucket like a trash bag in a trash can. I'll put all my food stuffs in there and I'll toss in maybe um, uh, two, three hundred cc uh, O2 absorbers or one, five hundred, depending on what I happen to have on hand. Put that in there. Force as much of the air out as I can with my hands. And... Uh, push the two ends of the lid together and then put something like a small ironing board or just a towel on a table down where I can lay the, the top of that bag down and you run an iron over the mylar and it seals it and the oxygen that's in there gets taken up by that O2 absorber and when you take it out later it just looks like all crushed up and formed around the food that's in there that's another reason you want to make sure though that none of your food has any kind of sharp edges pointing out that goes into the bucket Gamma seals on there, and you spin the lid on. Now, for that type of stealing, I'm not that big on gamma seals because you might as well just throw the bucket lid on there as far as I'm concerned because if you're going to open that, I have to open the mylar and take everything out. What I like gamma seals for are things like you take the mylar, you put it in there to help with additional light uh, and, and all. You throw your O2 absorbers in there, but maybe we're storing a great big bucket full of beans. And uh, beans have a great shelf life, even if they were just thrown in the bucket with no O2 absorbers or anything. But, you know, I want to make a, a pot of beans, so I go to my bucket because I'm storing what I eat and ate what I store. That gamma seal lid's great because I can spin it open, take a few cups of beans out, spin it back shut, and uh, I'm still in really good shape. Maybe after I've done that two or three times, I'll throw an extra O2 absorber in the bucket. So now I'm using the mylar pretty much just kind of bunched together, not really sealed up, so I don't have to open it. This is for something I'm going to use regularly. So it's up to you how you use them, but that's the uh, long and short, the skinny and the fat on mylar and gamma seals for buckets and doing your own long-term food storage. Really great for storing things like grains and rice and pastas. All right, let's take another question. Hey, Jack, this is Kevin from Texas. I uh, just got finished listening to your Gorilla Gardening show, uh, fantastic show as always. was kind of thinking about some different things while I was driving to work listening to the podcast and uh, really thought of just uh, what I thought was kind of a catchy and kind of a funny little t-shirt that could get made up maybe in the uh, in the uh, store for you guys would be uh, Gorilla Gardening, sticking it to the government one plant at a time. 
just kind of thinking, thought it was kind of cute and funny to myself. I got a giggle out of it. I know that. And if you guys sold a T-shirt for it, I'd guarantee I'd buy one. Hey, man, thanks again for everything, brother. Take care and keep marching on. All right, well, I kind of dig that idea. I think that'd be kind of cool. And I'll pass that on to Tiffany Rockwell and Rich Rockwell, who run our gear shop, and see maybe if she can come up with something kind of cool. I actually want her uh, to come up with a finished product for the Revolution Is You t-shirts first, but uh, I like that one too, and we'll see what we can do with it. And I want to remind you guys that most of our sponsors have chosen to have a forum at our, a board at our forum, and the gear shop has a board at our forum. So if you have any suggestions for stuff you'd like to see in the TSP gear shop, go to the Survival Podcast Forum, look at the, uh, the, the, the TSP Marketplace stuff, and you'll see a board there for the gear shop, and go in there and let Tiffany and Rich know what you'd like to see. And they're not going to make everything everybody comes up with, but... Most of the things that we have have come from the audience's suggestions. Uh, there's a lot of work to getting a new product in place. It's not as quick and easy, and it's expensive, and we have to pay for it, and then we have to put it in there, and then we have to hope that you buy it and that we're not sitting on it in January and pay an inventory tax on it. So uh, we can't just bring everything in right away, but that's a cool idea. That's a really cool idea. All right, so uh, with that, let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack. Uh, my name is Donald. I'm in Virginia. I'm Imperial Goat on the forum. My question is about uh, dehydrated food and rehydrating it. Uh, after watching your video on the zucchini, um, I'm getting ready to dehydrate some of my own zucchini with a borrowed uh, dehydrator from a neighbor. And I want to know how to rehydrate it. My only experience with dehydrated food is MREs when I was in the service. And I just want to know how to make that uh, zucchini edible again or any other uh, vegetables that I might dehydrate. Thanks, and keep up the great show. Well, that's a good question, and I have kind of a multifaceted answer. Uh, first and foremost, I'm going to recommend a resource for you. The lady I had on the show a while ago was good enough to come on and do an interview with me named Tammy Gangloff, who has a YouTube channel called Dehydrate to Store, and the two part of Dehydrate to Store is the number two. So Dehydrate, the number two store. And I'll put a link in today's show notes to her channel. And she also has a new website now. She's done a ton with dehydrating food, more than, you know, that's part of why... I haven't done as much with it in video because there's already this great resource out there, and I'm just redoing her stuff. So I tend to recommend her for you to learn about dehydrating beyond what I show you and for using the food. There's just plenty of videos on cooking with it. Short answer, though, on cooking with dehydrated food. Um, some products dehydrate and rehydrate better than others, uh, depending on what you want to do with them. You can take dehydrated carrots. You could soak those in water for about an hour. Once they've soaked in water for about an hour, uh, especially if a little bit warm water, th then you can, uh, let's say, put those in a skillet and warm them up with a little butter and some garlic and eat those as a side dish. And You'll barely know that that carrot is any different than a carrot you just picked out of the ground two days ago, chopped up, and did the same thing with. You do that with a green bean, and you don't get exactly the same experience. To me, green beans are fine in soups and uh, casseroles and things, but they don't quite rehydrate the way that something like a carrot does. Zucchini squash, um, they're in between. They rehydrate pretty dadgone good if you give them enough time to do that. But I still think they're better as like something you throw into soups and stews and things like that. Couple things that I do regularly. I have dehydrated uh, peppers, tons of them, and tomatoes, tons of them, both from a Harmony House that I purchased and from my own dehydration in my backyard. 
Uh, I'm also pretty big on uh, dehydrated onions. I buy those because it's just easier to buy them than stink the whole plate stuff with onion smell, and they're pretty cheap. Um, but I'll take stuff like that, dehydrated mushrooms as well. I'll take a little cup of water, put a few tablespoons of each into a little dish, and let them sit there for even just 20, 25 minutes when I'm doing this. Uh, then I'll get a, a frying pan, uh, cook a couple uh, pieces of bacon, take them out. So I've got some bacon grease to work with to cook my eggs. Scramble up about three eggs and dump everything I just described from dehydrated uh, vegetables in with those eggs. Scramble that up, sprinkle it with a little bit of cheese, and that's pretty badass. You can do that with dehydrated potatoes as well. Here's the way I do dehydrated potatoes. I'll take um, potatoes and slice them up and dehydrate them. Sometimes I go to the store, I buy, and I learned this from Tammy, I buy a great big bag of cubed uh, hash brown potatoes, not the, the stringy ones. I do those too, but the cubed ones I like better. The huge bag of those, you get like a four-pound bag for like $4 when they're on sale in the freezer section. Since they're already frozen, they've been blanched. I take that bag home, split it up on about four trays of my Excalibur, set it to about 120 degrees, dehydrated potatoes, done. It's that simple. Pack them away. I want to make some, let's say I take some camping and I want to frost them up in a skillet. I put them in some water, about an equal amount of water to potatoes. I'll leave them sit for about 30 to 40 minutes. That'll pretty well rehydrate them. I'll take them and the little bit of reserve water. There's there. a lot of reserve water. Dump some off. Leave a little bit. I'll put them in a skillet. I'll warm it slowly in that skillet, and that'll get kind of the last bit of dehydrating done. They seem to dehydrate a little bit better if the water warms up with them. As that water cooks off, drop a dollop of butter in that pan, some onions and garlic, and saute those up, and you'll think you're eating hash browns that were made out of fresh potatoes. Uh, there's so many ways to do that. But, again, I'm going to really recommend that you check out Tammy Gangloff's uh, channel to see a lot of the ways that she's cooked. Uh, but dehydrated vegetables are really great for soups, soups and stews and slow cooking. Uh, I've done things with take a piece of uh, roasted, uh, you know, chuck roast, put that in a pan, put a bunch of uh, different dehydrated vegetables in there, a little bit of vegetable or, or beef stock on top of it, Put the lid on it, throw that in my solar cooker, leave that sit for about four hours in the solar cooker. Absolutely phenomenal. The thing with your dehydrated vegetables is you're ending up with small pieces of vegetables. The larger it is, the less it's going to dehydrate well. So it's more along the lines of ingredients to cook with than side dishes. And you know, here's what doesn't work. Rehydrating a vegetable, trying to get it back to a state that you would eat it raw, doesn't work. Tomatoes, fabulous for omelets, fa omelets, fabulous for stews. Uh, celery, dehydrates beautifully. Great in stews, omelets, uh, soups, sautéing. If you're going to sauté something and you're going to make uh, what they call a mirepoix, which is uh, a, a base for a lot of uh, French cooked dishes, but good for anything. That's uh, equal parts of celery, uh, carrot, and onion. There's no reason that can't be done beautifully from dehydrated foods. You get a jar of each of those ingredients you've dehydrated. You keep them in your cabinet. You're about to cook something. Uh, you would generally use maybe, let's say, a cup of each. So for dehydrated purposes, you use, let's say, a half a cup of celery, half a cup of onions, and about a third a cup of carrots because they really shrink down. Put them in a, in a, a, a glass container. Throw some water on them about an hour before you're going to cook. They're ready to go. I mean, it makes things convenient. It's not just a storage method, but there's a lot of dishes I make with all these fresh vegetables in them that just wouldn't be there if I had to prepare them every time I had to cook. So, great question. And you can see when I start talking about cooking, I get excited. And this is what I said. Um, 
It's a bridge. It's a bridge between people. You bring people over, you serve them a meal prepared with dehydrated vegetables you grew in your backyard. They love it. Then you tell them how you made it. And then they like, tell me more. And then you are preaching to the choir instead of trying to pe- preach to the people on the street that don't want to hear you. That's why I think that cooking uh, and food is such a great way to spe- spread the message of self-reliance and preparedness. Uh, and you're going to see that a lot of the questions today dovetail together. It's amazing how you guys think alike. Uh, we'll start that out with the next, qu- next question here, and you won't believe the one that comes after it. Hey, how are you doing, Jack? This is uh, Spooky One from the forum. I have a question about bamboo. I've heard it is useful for all kinds of things, and I wanted to know how I would go about growing it. I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I'm not sure if that's the right zone. Um, if it is, let me know how I would go about doing it. I'm out of plants. Do I get seeds? How easy is it? Thanks a lot. Bye. All right, well, great great question. Let's start out with the area being Albuquerque. First of all, the first thing I want everybody to know about bamboo is it's not tropical. I think a lot of people have a vision in their head that the tropics are where bamboo grows and there are varieties of bamboo that grow in the tropics, tropics, but it's native to Asia, and it grows from everywhere to the tropical regions of Asia up into the high mountains of Mongolia and northern China, which are not at all tropical environments. Uh, there are varieties of bamboo that are hardy down to 10 below zero, so I'm not concerned at all about temperature. You just need to pick the right variety of bamboo. The concerns that I have for you in Albuquerque revolve around two things. A, soil quality, which means you're going to have to probably improve your soil because it's not going to go, grow well uh, in sand. So you're going to have to use a lot of compost and soil improvements where you plant your bamboo. As long as you'll do that, no problem. And that's going to help with concern number two, how dry the climate is. Bamboo, while not native to just the tropics, it is native to moist areas. Uh, cloud forests up in the uh, the mountains and, and other places like that. So it is a moisture-intensive grass. Bamboo, even the big, giant timber bamboo you can barely get your hands around that grows 60 feet tall or taller, uh, is a grass. So as long as you provide irrigation, and I would go with drip irrigation for a small plot of bamboo there for your building materials and things that you want to do with it, um, and good composting, you should have no problems whatsoever. You are also going to want to try to put it in a place where it gets some filtered sunlight, not that direct, intense Albuquerque sun. Uh, that will scorch it. It, it. Bamboo is a forest plant. It grows in you know holes in the forest where sunlight comes through for a few hours a day. It doesn't grow out in the middle of a field where it gets beat on all day long. So you're going to want to tuck it somewhere where it gets protection, especially from that late day, very intense sun. Uh, you don't want to get it into total shade where it never gets any sun, but you want to keep it filtered. The variety that you are probably going to want to grow, and less important for you maybe than other people, but I think you'll still have more success with it, is clumping bamboo. There's two types of bamboos, two main types. There's hundreds of species. Uh, clumping bamboos expand very slowly and kind of uniformly in a clump. Uh, running bamboos, which the timber bamboos are generally running bamboos. Those are the big bamboos, again, that they build entire, you know, fortresses out of in the, in the, in the ancient world. Grow through runners. And they'll run for yards and yards and yards, and they'll keep running. Uh, if you plant timber bamboo in your backyard, it'll be in your na- all of your neighbor's backyards within a year. It just goes nuts once it gets established. So clumping bamboo will slow things down. You're going to get bamboo that gets about a half inch to a little bit bigger in diameter and grows up to about 15 feet long. Great for building things. 
Wait till you hear the next question. Swear to God, folks, these two questions came in back to back with each other from two guys that I'm sure don't know each other from Adam. Uh, but good for building things. Now, the other thing about clumping bamboo, and it was in my recent article in Ron Hood's magazine, Survival Quarterly, the issue that just came out, was on actually eating bamboo. All bamboo shoots are edible. So once you have that established clumping bamboo or even timber bamboo, if you want to grow that, if you have an area where you can, uh, do it without, you know, hacking off your neighbors, or if you build an encasement. One thing people do with running bamboos is they get a trencher, and they trench about three feet in the ground, and they make a moat, basically. They fill that with a very thick uh, either concrete or rubber, and it has to come up above the ground as well as below the ground, above the ground a couple inches, because the runners will actually run across the top of the ground, and they contain it that way. Uh, Or that clumping bamboo, uh, you just go out there and just cut shoots as they come up, and you've got a great source of bamboo shoots for stir-frying and steaming and things like that. And I love eating them. So it's a great perennial food source as well. Stick with clumping bamboos. Uh, go to Rain Tree Nursery, even if you don't buy from them, and you'll find a whole bunch of varieties of clumping bamboos, and then you'll know what to look for. Definitely, you can grow it in Albuquerque. You can definitely grow bamboo in just about every part of the United States. Believe it or not, folks, even if you love those real cold climates, anywhere where temperatures typically don't go below negative 10. So if you live somewhere where it's like tundra, yes, okay, you're too far north. But 90% of the country, you can grow it. Uh, if you even live in some of the borderline areas, get the most cold hardy you can find, and in the uh, in the winter time, mulch the hell out of the root system, and you'll probably still be all right. Uh, but yeah, there there you go. Big things: irrigation and soil improvement. You should be able to do just fine with it. Uh, and also, don't let it get beat up by the sun. Filtered sunlight, direct sunlight for only a couple hours a day, uh, and you can have a great source of building material and food. Uh, let's take another question again, guys. I didn't set this up. I didn't organize them this way. They came in this way. Why do you hear it? Hey, Jack. I'm struggling with building some trellises right now, and I'm realizing that I have to dig out my old Boy Scout manual and learn how to lash stuff together properly again. And that also got me to thinking about proper knots and things like that. And I know it would be hard to do a show on, like, knot tying since it's pretty much a visual thing. But I thought it would be interesting to talk about some of these. Uh, it's kind of a primitive skill, I guess. Um, I don't know if there's any others that would bundle in with this kind of thing. But around our homestead, we are very, very short on cash. And so a lot of the way we do things involves we find a good deal or some free, like, scrap lumber or windows or, you know, whatever. And we figure out how to take that and build what we need. So, like in this case, I've got lots and lots of free bamboo, and so I'm building trellises, and now I'm finding i got to learn how to lash them together so they don't slip and all that. Uh, okay, so first caller calls in and says, how do I grow bamboo? The next caller calls in and says, how do I tie bamboo together to make trellises for my garden? First of all, you're right. There's absolutely no way that I can describe lashing bamboo together uh, for you uh, across an audio podcast. Maybe I'll do a video where I'll show you how to do that. I just did a video uh, using you know the cheap green bamboo sticks you get for, I think, like four bucks for a big pack of them at the store to extend a trellis 
and a square foot guard where the trellis is actually built out of electrical conduit, but I've got beans that outgo to trellis and I give them an extra two feet. And what did I lash those together with? Tie wraps because I have millions of them lying around back from my cabling days still. So to me, they're free. I realize they cost other people money. Uh, maybe I'll do something with how you lash bamboo together. But I'm also, as I mentioned earlier with Tammy's uh, YouTube channel, I'm big on just, hey, if there's a resource, Let's just give people a resource. I don't have to monopolize information. Uh, you know, one of my very best friends, uh, Brian Black, over at uh, uh, ITS Tactical, lives a few miles from me. We hang out all the time. Uh, one of his big things on his YouTube channel is he does a knot of the week. And I really think everybody from TSP should subscribe to Brian's channel and check out all his knots. Now, I haven't gone through all of them. Uh, I've watched a lot of them. I've learned a lot of new stuff myself by watching them. I don't remember ever seeing one on lashing sticks together. It almost seems impossible that he hasn't done one yet. He's out of town for two weeks. He's uh, suffering through a wedding and then going through a class. Uh, when he gets back, uh, I'll ask. I tweeted him today, or tweeted him today, and I got a response from his stand-in saying he's not available. So, uh I'll find out for you guys if he's got one. If he doesn't, I guarantee you that'll be his next night of the week because he's always looking for ideas for what people are looking for. So on the lashing, uh, check out ITS Tactical. Now, the other side of this, it isn't that hard. Um, if you want to lash two pieces of material together, basically the pattern that you need to use is an X and a, what I would call a wraparound. So take your two index fingers and put them together about a 45-degree angle and imagine that you go uh, from catty corner between, you know, where your X's meet back and forth that way as you're doing kind of an X back and forth. And each, each time you do an X once, then go once around one item and change the direction. Do that a few times, tie your ends off, and you'll get a pretty good lash uh, for putting material together at an angle. The other thing with bamboo is sticking it into the ground gives it a lot of stability, so now you're only bringing ends together for a trellis, uh, as you see, uh, as, uh, you know, so you're only holding, uh, one end, so to speak, that way you get a lot of stability from the ground. And since it's kind of springy, if you kind of put some spring into it and it pulls against each other from different angles, it increases, uh, its bonding strength. So there's some other ideas with that. But I also wanted to put this call on, not just because of this, you know, how, how similar it was, but the overall attitude of, hey, we don't have a lot of money, so we're going to make do with what we have. And we get things like, you know, cheap windows or free windows in addition to bamboo. And, hey, you can build greenhouses with that. And I think that there's a huge place for that in self-sufficiency-minded lifestyle. And we prepare for a disaster. If we ever have a big disaster, that's what everybody's going to have to do. So you might as well save money and learn how to do it now. So I'm big on the scavenging, salvaging, what can I do with this thing concept. And I think that there's a lot of stuff out there that we can do that with. But on the lashing, just keep at it. Use that Boy Scout manual and check out Brian Black's uh, YouTube channel. Again, it's ITS Tactical. Uh, and I will put a link in today's show notes to it. He does a really good job with those knots, folks. Uh, so make sure you're subscribed to him. Uh, let's take another question. Hi, Jack. This is Tom Serviceman2031 on the forum. I'm calling in regards to people talking about burying PVC with their cash and stuff in it and problems burying it lengthwise. Um, what would be a good solution to that is make the hole bigger and put a PVC down there with a loose-fitting cap and put your PVC with your stash in it inside that and then cover it up. That way all you have to do is uncover the top, take the top off, and your cash supply would be easily accessible and you can pull it out of the ground. 
without making a big hole. Um, just thought I'd mention it. Haven't seen any mention of that on the forum, and it'd be better than bearing it lengthwise and having a bigger hole. Thank you. Bye. Well, that's a great idea, and I have to tell you this. I'm embarrassed that I didn't think of it first. Um, I've often talked about, you know, using, and let's make sure I do one thing for maybe folks learning my lesson on terminology. When he says uh, their cash, he's not talking about their money. I guess you could put some money in there, but he's talking about a cash as in a store of goods or items, no matter what that may be. A cash is in C-A-C-H-E, like oh, you would look at it and think it was pronounced cache. So like your browser caches information so that you have web pages load faster. You may cache some materials so that if you were ever kind of stranded, you have a place where you can go get some food, maybe some ammunition, you know, what have you. Uh, maybe, some, maybe some money, uh, whatever it might be, maybe some water. And one of the, the old tricks for doing this is get a, a piece of PVC pipe, and get a post hole digger and dig a hole down in the ground and uh, cap the ends of your PVC pipe. Of course, you've got a watertight, and if you throw some O2 absorbers in there, airtight environment, put that down in the hole, bury it, and obviously you can get at it. Of course, it's hard to get out of the hole. The ground closes in around it and what have you. So another way is to build a big, long trench where it's easier to get the whole thing out of there, but now it's more digging and it's more work. What this guy's suggesting is put it in there in that vertical method and put one of those screw caps, or, you know, he thought about putting a loose cap on it is actually what he said, and then take a second tube, a smaller piece of PVC pipe, put all your stuff in there, seal that up, put that inside the first tube, put the loose cap and cover it, and then when you un uncover it, obviously you can just pull that, that secondary tube out of there, leave your primary tube in the ground, and if you ever need to cast something there again, you can do it again, okay? I'm going to maybe tweak that a little bit. I'll tell you from my experience with working in underground construction. The PVC tops that, you know, screw on, so I can put a fitting on the pipe, a joint fitting, and one side is a slip fitting with PVC cement, and the other side is a screw top. You put that on there, take a wrench and tighten it, and it is as airtight and watertight as any other seal that PVC has. So you could literally put that in the ground, Put that screw top on there and all your material straight in there. Maybe you pack it in some bags or something, just for uh, some plastic bags or something, just to be safe. Another great idea would be take a string with a, a, a cut-out piece of wood that's just a little bit smaller than the diameter of the pipe with a hole through it and a knot tied in that string. Put that all the way to the bottom of the pipe. Put all your materials in the pipe. And then you could make a you know, four or five foot hole to put your pipe into. And by pulling that string, you pull all your materials up out of that pipe. And it makes it easier to get the stuff that's deeper down in the pipe. You could cast your items that way and you never have to remove the pipe. I want to make sure one thing is very clear, though. If you're caching items this way, make damn sure you can find where you buried them. Because I know for a fact people have said, damn, I lost some really good stuff. And I know one guy that... I won't tell you even what state it's in, but there's a Ruger 1022 cached somewhere, and the dude that cached it can't find it. Uh, so doing things like maybe putting some metal in there uh, and marking a GPS coordinate or something would be a good idea, and at least if you have metal, you can go over with a metal detector if it takes that to find it, using landmarks and things like that. Remember, things like trees tend to get cut down sometimes. and So just think about this so you make sure you can find your cache, but... You know, instead of just sealing up that tube with cement and having to extract the entire tube to get the material out of it, using an end cap that's removable, I feel stupid. I honestly feel stupid for not thinking about that. So thanks for pointing it out. Let's go ahead and take another question. 
Hey, Jack, this is Archer from the forum. I'm listening to episode 435, and uh, something popped up in my head. You're talking about proficiency with the weapon, where you're not dependent upon the system. But also, if you're proficient with the weapon, or proficient with gardening, or proficient with cooking, or making your own bread, or raising chickens, or raising goats, whatever, you can also teach those skills and spread your proficiency. What you know can help someone else know that, who can help someone else know that, and that starts the wildfire. Marshall Jack, keep up the good work. Bye. And yet again, one listener's call dovetails beautifully into another listener's call. We started out the first call with a guy that talked about meeting a guy from South Africa at a department store who was asked to take some pipe home. And in return, the person from South Africa taught him how to make real South African biltong, spreading skills uh, through uh, community building and a barter environment. And then Archer calls in, and Archer says, hey, you know what? If you become really proficient in your skills, you can share them with other people, and they can share them with other people, and we can spread this message of self-sufficiency all over the place. Like I said, there's some kind of a wire, an invisible wire, that connects members of this audience to each other and has you doing things like this. Because, again, I don't try to order these calls. I just screen them and go, that's a good call, throw it in the queue. That's a good call, throw it in the queue. Um, so badass. Next, though, I want to point out how accurate that is, how big a deal it really is. And I want to tell you something that I think people have lost an understanding of. And that is the term of master. We have taken master and we have elevated it to such a level that we think a master is a martial artist that has reached a certain degree as a black belt and he's been there for a certain number of years and somebody has bestowed the title upon him of master of that art. And any other master is that type of a master. And I'm not belittling that. I appreciate that. I respect that. I understand the terminology as it's used there. But master is a much more encompassing word. To me, a master is someone who has become proficient enough at what they do to have students. The minute you start taking students, and you take anybody, and you're able to improve their proficiency, even 1%, you have a degree of mastery. Because you've learned how to do something someone else doesn't know how to do. And more importantly, you've mastered the art of teaching. And I'll tell you something that I've learned over the years. When you teach things, you learn. When you teach things, they become committed to memory. You think you know something, and then you teach it, and then you become a master of it. You don't become a teacher after you master it. You become a master by teaching. And I think we need more and more people out there that are acting as masters, masters of gardening. You don't need to be a professional. What do they call it? Uh, there's a word for it that people use. Uh, uh, I can't think of it now. It's a something gardener. It might be a master gardener. I know, there's some word I've heard tossed around where I'm like, what the heck is that? You know? And I've heard people talk about a master compost maker or whatever. Come on! Alright? These are skills that have been with humanity for 15,000 years. This is putting a seed in the ground and going, that didn't grow, we did something wrong, let's change it. Let's all be masters, because masters have the most important thing. Students. Let's all teach. Let's all reach across the fence line to a neighbor and go, hey, how's your garden? What are you having problems with? Let me show you what I'm doing. By the way, I'm having problems with, and I notice yours are, what are you doing? Because here's the thing about mastery and teaching. as a two-way street. It's not a subservient role of teacher and student. It's a role of equals. When it's practiced properly, 
Everybody learns from everybody at the same time. I guarantee you, when the original first caller called in, uh, he went over to this guy's house and talked to him, and the guy taught him how to make biltong. I guarantee you, he left knowledge. He left knowledge. He didn't just take it. And that's what true mastery is. Mastery is the ability to leave behind knowledge, even when you've been on the receiving end of knowledge. These are important things that we take forward as we build our community and we build self-sufficiency going forward. So thanks for the call, Archer. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hi, Jack. In a recent show, you mentioned uh, not just killing an animal and leaving the carcass. Uh, we've got a large woodchuck at our new property, and if I shoot it, I'm not sure what to do with the carcass. So I figured I'd ask you. Um, I'm not sure we're really ready to start eating woodchuck, but I'd like some suggestions on what to do when you kill a varmint. I'm a city boy that's not just moved to a more rural location, so this is something I figure I'm going to have to do now and then. Thank you, and uh, look forward to your answer. Ah, the woodchuck. Uh, despised by many, loved by a few like me who know how good woodchuck really is. Seriously, woodchuck is uh, pretty good eating stuff. I would call the meat... Kind of a mixture somewhere in the middle between um, pork and like squirrel or rabbit. It's somewhere in that that taste profile. Um, there's a lot of talk about scent glands on woodchucks. They do have a couple on their forelegs. Uh, I've never had much of a problem with that. When I tell you how I skin them, uh, you'll understand why. They also have uh, glands around their, their anal area, uh, and you don't want any of that getting into the meat. So... What you want to do if you skin a woodchuck is I usually do that by hanging them up by their back feet just like a little deer, uh, making cuts around the ankles, down the legs, and just skin them like a, like a deer, uh, straight down. And if you don't know how to do that, I mean, it's hard to explain how to skin an animal. There's plenty of videos online of how to do that. But you, you just keep cutting the skin away from the flesh all the way down. Uh, when I get down to the forelegs, um, I'll just skin down to about that elbow, right about where they are, and I take a pair of tin snips, and I just cut that lower piece of their leg off because uh, there's nothing there anyway. There's nothing to eat there, so why bother with it? So that just kind of all goes out. Uh, gut them, uh, and uh, when you, uh, you're you dealing with any kind of an animal like this, what you want to do is you lay them on their back once they've been skinned, and you've got kind of where the, the, the anus is and, and the, the bladder in that mid part of the pelvis is from each side uh, just out toward the, uh, the point where the, where the thigh creases along the, uh, the uh, groin. You cut into the bone and remove the bone, the anus, the bladder all in one piece. Cut around, you know, cut through the bone with uh, with a serrated knife or a small saw, and then cut around the back side. Just take that all out in one piece. Don't puncture the bladder. Uh, don't puncture the lower intestinal uh, portion, uh, and don't cut the butt. Okay, <laughs> just make it as simple as I can. And remove kind of sounds gross, but remove that all in one piece. And immediately wash your hands of the knife blade after you do that portion of it, and you're not going to get any of that on there. What is a woodchuck good for? Um, they're very good if you cook them slow. They have to be slow cooked. Uh, if you wanted to grill one, what I would advise you to do is pressure cook it for about 20 minutes first and then grill it, and that will tenderize it quite a bit. Um, they can be cooked like any other meat. Uh, I've always found them to be good. Uh, they're ugly. Uh, they're tough. Their fur is absolutely worthless. I mean, I, I can't see anybody wearing a woodchuck coat. Their skin is very tough, so if you wanted to make small leather items out of it, I've never done it, but I think they would make a very tough leather uh, for things like maybe making um, uh, things for, like, uh, what do you call it, uh, finger tabs. 
for shooting a bow and arrow. They'd probably be very good for things like that, or small wrapping pieces of leather, or maybe making lashing straps or things like that, because it is a very tough hide. If you don't want to eat woodchuck and you say, I want to get rid of these things, but uh, I don't really want to eat them. If you have dogs, they'll eat them. They'll be happy to eat them. Uh, I would still advise you to skin them, uh, but I wouldn't even worry about cooking them. And I know people are going to freak out, but um, I have a very good friend named Lou Olson who is a Ph.D. and did her uh, doctoral thesis on canine nutrition and basically points out the fact that canines in the wild don't have anybody cook their food. Uh, the fur I would do just because I don't like dogs regurgitating fur in my house. So uh, I, that's why I would skin them. But other than that, I mean, you could just basically skin, quarter, don't worry about the uh, glands, the dog won't care, and throw the entrails and the uh, and the uh, meat and bones and all to your dogs, and they'll eat them. As long as there's a big enough dog to handle bones like that. If you were worried about the bones, you can debone the meat and throw that to the dog. Definitely feed the, the entrails to the dogs. They'll be happy to eat them. Uh, no reason not to. They're not like they're big disease carriers or anything. Obviously, if you have an animal that looks in poor health, uh, you don't want to feed that to anybody or eat that. You you want to bury it and leave it go. But we ate woodchuck all the time. I used to do a lot of groundhog hunting, uh, as they're also called, whistle pig hunting in uh, Pennsylvania in order to get permission for farmers to hunt on their land. And uh, if we weren't, uh, if we didn't feel like eating them, we would feed them to the dog. But usually, I'd bring them home. I would skin them. What I would normally do is actually skin them as I've described, and the most of the meat is on those back legs and the backbone and what they would call the butt roast, where sirloin comes from, from a, a, a cow, and up right up until the ribs where the kind of the chops area are. So I would take that whole front end and just cut that off, and then I would feed that to our dogs, and I would take the back end, and usually I would make that, you take two of those, two woodchucks like that, celery, carrots, potatoes, and slow cook that, and if I fed that to you, and I didn't tell you what it was, you'd be so happy to eat that. You wouldn't be quite sure what it was. You'd be like, sort of like rabbit, but it's not, what is this? Is, you know, is this a piece of, you know, the only thing that would give it away is the shape of it. You know, if I deboned it all, you'd never know. Now, the, 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 the other side of it is, if you just take woodchuck meat, cut it up and saute it in butter and onions, it's pretty rubbery and tough. They're tough animals, and they have a tough meat, and the bigger, the tougher. If you shoot a young one, uh, anything under about 9 pounds total weight, you can probably get away with cooking it that way. Once you get into an animal that's more than a year old, though, they're very, very tough critters. Uh, you're going to want to do either pressure cooking if you're going to grill them. A pre-cooking and a pressure cooker will soften that meat right up for you. Uh, or cook them like you would a chuck roast or something. That's slow cooking. I've never done solar cooking with woodchucks. We don't have them down here. Um, one of these days I'm going to get up north and pop me some more woodchucks. And when I do... They're going to come home and go in that solar cooker. I'll, I'll let you know how it comes out. Anyway, great question. Let's go ahead and uh, take another one. Hello, Jack. My name's John. I have a quick question regarding your show the other day about being your own brand. And you mentioned that you had you thought the resume was dead and really interested me. But I don't think you went any further than that. Uh, I listened to the show and show and I didn't hear you elaborate that on too much and I was hoping you could today. Thank you very much. Well good question. I thought I did a pretty good job with that but I'll try to expand on it and uh, I definitely think understanding how the business world works and how career paths are going to go forward and how people are going to earn their income going forward and, and the changing uh, landscape of employment 
is a survival topic because how do we keep a roof on the head and food on the table, a roof overhead and food on the table? And most of us do that through some sort of income, whether we own a business uh, or whether we work for somebody that runs a business. It's really for most people one way or the other, unless you have that passive interest income or something coming in because you've collected a trust or something and you're one of those lucky folks, or you worked your ass off to a point where you made enough money that you can do that now. Uh, and one day your spoiled kids will do the same. Um, for everybody else, you have to go out there and you have to hit the streets and you have to make things happen. You either have to make things happen in your business or you have to get a job and stay employed and stay marketable. So if you lose the job, you can find another one. And what I said the other day is the resume is dying. It's not dead, but it's dying. Um, it will die slower in some areas than others. One thing we need to understand is there's a whole lot of people that are in HR departments right now that think they're more important than they are. They don't hire people anymore, most of them. Most people in HR don't hire anybody anymore. They don't. They don't recruit anybody anymore. They're really not that important. They're there to make sure all the paperwork gets done properly. The hiring manager has already hired the person before they talk to HR in many situations. In some situations, the hiring manager goes through HR, HR runs an advertising campaign or marketing campaign or sends out emails, resumes come in through HR, they go to the hiring manager. But the hiring manager does this, not the human resources person. And what's happening more and more, and I'll tell you that the last couple of jobs I had, this is how I got them. I met somebody, I talked to somebody, we exchanged information, we talked about what they were doing, what I was doing, we saw a fit, we had lunch, we discussed what they were doing, and we discussed what I knew how to do and what I would do for them. That was a job interview, even though it was just a friendly lunch. Then I would give them some proof points, I would show them what they have done in the past, and I said, look, I'm interested, do you guys want to make an offer? If they made me an offer, I accepted the offer, and then I turned the resume into HR as part of the hiring package. So that HR could put it on file because HR thought they were important. HR meant nothing in those last three jobs of my career before I went off completely on my own. Nothing. Zero. And the resume meant nothing. In fact, the very last job I got, where I ended up with my partnership with Neil, uh, Neil Franklin out of it, um, the HR person, who I thought was a lovely gal, I'm not putting her down, I'm not putting, if you're in HR, I'm not putting you down. I'm talking about the reality of the role now. She, when I gave her my resume, she goes, well, you know, just so you know, human resources people hate functional resumes. I said, well, I just signed the offer letter that you already wrote me before you saw it, so I really do not care if you hate functional resumes. It's just so you have something for your file. Now, file it and leave me be. Now, I sound kind of arrogant saying that now. I, I had already met this person, and we were I was kind of horsing around with her when I said it. But I also meant it. And that was four years ago. I guess, four years ago that that happened. And I thought the resume was dying a death then simply because real professionals were now skipping that process. But today, it's even better. Because we have Twitter, because we have Facebook, because we have LinkedIn. And people's resume is now their LinkedIn profile. Here's, I mean, if you look at a LinkedIn profile, what does it say? Here's where I worked, here's how long I've been there, here's what I do. Now, that is supposedly so that you can network with me so we can exchange business leads or, you know, I can find somebody that can come work for you. But you don't think that gets used as a resume? If you have a resume that is a, a document you wrote in Microsoft Word and you spun into a PDF and it's all pretty and it chronologically lists your employment, it is very much useless today to get you any kind of a real meaningful job. Again, there's pockets where it's still important. If you're in one of those pockets, you're thinking, man, this guy's nuts. But I'm telling you there's places where it's gone. And I'm telling you 
it's dead from a standpoint of getting the best jobs. Do you know what it means when a company goes out to CareerBuilder or Jobs.com, puts out an advertisement for a job and says, send me your resume, send me your salary history, and send me your letter, uh, your cover letter? We are freaking desperate. We can't find people that know how to do the shit we need done. We're screwed. Please, somebody come help us. We can't find you. Come find us. That's what it means. When, a, when the company advertises the salary and says, and the salary is X plus benefits, we're totally screwed. Oh, my God, help us. Well, somebody that knows how this job works, please show up and tell us, because even we don't know. That's what it means. And that's why the resume is dead. Because the resume is now for getting the jobs where people are desperate for employees. And the resume is now so it can live in a filing cabinet with HR so that if it ever turns out that you lied when you got your job, they have it documented where you lied. It is not for hunting for jobs anymore. It just isn't. Now, does that mean if you're trying to find a job and you have a resume and there's an advertisement, you shouldn't send your resume there? It absolutely doesn't mean that. Send your resume there. I hope it works for you. I hope you get a job. They're desperate. Maybe they'll hire you. But they're also going to probably get a thousand resumes and some idiot that doesn't even know what to do is going to screen them and pass the best ones on to the hiring manager and he's not even going to get a look at a lot of people's resumes who he might want to hire. And he's getting frustrated at that. Very, very frustrated at that fact. Hiring managers all over the place are getting tired of trying to skim through resumes and they're getting tired of processes that do it and people that do it. So two things are happening. One, the managers are avoiding the process and they're hunting people directly. Okay, That means that they're using social net networks. They're using LinkedIn. They're using Facebook. They're using Twitter. And they're trying to find people that fit the company more so than the skill set. If you have really decent skills and you really fit the company perfectly, that's better than perfect skill set and you don't fit the company at all. And you don't fit the work environment at all. So the managers are going hunting, that's one. The other side is technology switching to where now the hiring manager is going to be able to log into a, 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 an intranet site, not an internet, an intranet site for his company, and he's going to go in there, he's going to type up a job description, he's going to type up all the skills that he wants, and that's going to go down to IT. IT is going to repackage that, stick it into a scanning tool, they're going to put that out on the internet, and it's going to say apply for the job of XYZ. And candidates, instead of sending a resume, are just going to go in there and apply for this job. And just like those little kiosks at like Walmart, Home Depot, Target, it's going to be just like that for even the most technically advanced positions in the world. You're going to go through and answer all those questions. The computer is going to score you. The top 10% of candidates that get scored that way are going to get put in front of the hiring manager. He's going to call you up. He's not going to need your freaking resume. A couple of them are old school people. They're stuck. I'd like to see your resume. What the frick do you need my resume for? I just answered 115 questions about the job. You either know that we want to talk or you don't. Because the resume is never what got you hired anyway. It's what got you the interview. You know what I told people when they said, where's your resume? I don't have one. I'm not looking for a job. What do you mean you're not looking for a job? We're talking, right? Because you wanted to talk. Let's talk about it. And if it seems like we're going to do something, I'll put together a resume for you. But honest to God, I'm not looking for a job right now. I just became desirable. So you have this just change in the dynamics. And the way it's always been for the top positions anyway. The top positions aren't filled with resumes. They're filled with connections. Well, now those connections are permeating down 
through all walks of life because any hiring manager in any small company can tie into 10,000 people in a day through LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, Facebook, and other things like that. And people, and here's the other thing, folks. People want to hire people with common interests. I would rather hire someone that likes to hunt and fish and is okay at what he does if I know I can make them better than hire someone that thinks it's terrible to hunt and fish and you're just killing things. Oh, my God. I, I, uh, I can't believe you eat meat. I don't want that person in my company. You can say it's discrimination all you want. I'm telling you reality. I don't have any employees. So they can't get me for discrimination. I'm telling you how people think. And I'm telling you, there's a guy that's sitting there right now going, I just like to eat tofu. And he wants to hire that person. So let him hire that person, and I'll hire the person that hunts and fishes. And people are extending their social networks that way. If you're branding yourself, listen. If, I can't go through the whole thing again, but go listen to that show, Building Your Personal Brand. If you're doing that, and over the next five years, you build up a following, a fan page on Facebook for whatever it is that you do and you love with a few thousand fans, and you have a few thousand Twitters, and you have a bunch of friends, and you have you know all these places that you're tied in, LinkedIn, whatever you do, whatever works for you, whatever follows your DNA, what you like to do, and you lose a job, and you're looking for a new job, you know what? A couple bulletins, and there's somebody that's been watching you for five years. That's always thought, man, I'd like to have him here. And they're breaking their neck to figure out how can I... You don't want to move to, to North Carolina. Shit. Um, well, your job. Can we, can we come up with a telecommute way? Can we have you maybe come in for a week, a month? You spend the rest of the time telecommuting. They'll try to fit the job to you if they want you bad enough. I learned this with the, the, the you know, company I worked with with technical recruiters. That you could call somebody up and go, do you need anybody? No, click. And, and there were recruiters that did that all the time. And then there was a recruiter that would call up a company and go, hey, you know what? I'm working with a guy right now. And here's the deal. He's in sales, and uh, he worked for uh, one of your competitors, and he brought in $60 million last year uh, for them. And he's looking at a few different companies and considering maybe making a move. And you're one of the three companies that he's considering uh, possibly working with. And, I mean, this is really, you know, we've got to do a non-disclosure. Obviously, this guy doesn't want his name out there that he, he's even shopping jobs on the street right now. But I was wondering if you'd like to have maybe at least a conversation with him before I put him in front of anybody else. Because I've told him I think your company would probably be the best fit for him. It doesn't matter if they're hiring now. Do you want to talk to the person that took $60 million worth of business off the street last, last year from you that could have been yours? Uh-huh, yeah. And that can be, I don't care how low level the job is or how high level the job is. The best recruiters always made it fit that way. And they always got their candidates interviews. And that's all they could do is get them the interview. And then it was up to the candidate to win the role. But that's not about a resume, is it? And what I'm telling you is computers are going to do that job in the future. Computers are going to present the candidate fully packaged in the future. And the personal relationships will be built in the shrinking global economy of social media. Let me put it to you this way. Let's say that for one reason or another, I couldn't do the survival podcast anymore. Just couldn't do it. Just couldn't do it. I don't know why. I would have to be, it wouldn't really make sense because I'd have to be dead. But let's say I needed a job. What do you think would happen if I went out to my networks and said, I need a job? That was all I said. How many people do you think would want me in their marketing department or their sales department? Why? I'm out here. I have a brand. 
Now, people go, well, you have a podcast. You don't need a podcast. You need to be out there. You need to have a brand. Because if you are the most badass photographer in the world and you're working for National Geographic and they downsize and you're not available anymore and instead of living in your fishbowl of National Geographic where everybody tells you you're super, right? Hey, you know, Tom, get out there to Egypt. Take those pictures. Go get shot at. It'll be great. If you're out there building your personal brand in addition to your position, you can freelance now or I guarantee you, I guarantee you, Tom's going to want to talk to you. And it could be big companies like that or little companies. The littlest company in the world has a competitor that they hate. If you're branded alongside of that competition as being good, that competitor or the, all of those competitors will want to talk to you. That's why the resume is done. It is a piece of paper that won't even be paper soon. It will be an electronic file in your employee uh, uh, file for legal liability reasons only. In every aspect, in every way that it's used, it is dying a well-deserved death. A resume is the biggest waste of time, in my opinion, that I've ever seen. I've never hired somebody because of their resume. I've interviewed them because of their resume. Generally, I don't talk about their resume. I talk about them. I talk about the goals that they have for themselves. I talk about the goals that I have for my company. And I ask them to describe for me how they're going to fit together. And whatever they're lacking, I ask them how they're going to fill that hole. You don't know how to do this yet? How long is it going to take you to learn it? No one here is going to teach you. That's what an interview with me was like. No one here has time. If I had someone that knew how to do this type of PHP scripting, I wouldn't need to hire you. So you're going to have to learn it. Tell me how you're going to figure it out. And tell me how long you think it's going to take you. I wanted to know. And if they had a good answer, you know what? If everything else was right, they got a job. The resume's dead, folks. And that's not bad news. I know it scares the shit out of some people here. The resume's dead. Especially some people that have career paths that seem to revolve around them. All I'm telling is if you build your brand, you'll never need a resume again. Except to hand to that HR person after you've signed the offer letter. It's just the way it's turning out. It's the way it's becoming. Between technology and social media. So with that, I'm going to wrap up today. I hope I've made you think. And if you haven't heard that show yet, uh, you really need to go listen to that show. It'll probably uh, kick you in the ass a few times, but hopefully it'll change your outlook on where the world is going and, and what's happening in it. Remember, it's up to you where you go. It's up to you what you do next. It's up to you what choices you make. The, the companies of the world are becoming smaller from a standpoint of being able to reach out and touch people and for people to be able to reach out and touch them and know them. A lot of them are fighting it. A lot of companies have banned their employees from Facebook or at least from mentioning their association with the company on Facebook. I'll tell you right now, if you are in a company that does that, your company is stupid. Your company is dumb. Your company is full of it scared old men that are idiots that don't understand the way the world is changing. And the competitor that you have that has all of their people out there is going to take away all of the very best people in your industry. So go find them and go work for them. Go work with them. Go support them. If you're afraid of social media, get over it because it ain't going away. It's just like the people that were afraid of the radio and were afraid of the television and were afraid of the internet. You need to adapt and you die. Your resume is not going to adapt. It's going to die. It's up to you what you do with your career path. It's up to you what you want to do with your life. And on that, I'll go ahead and sign off. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if time gets tough. We're even if they don't.
Nobody up there cares.